and well, it's good to see you all this morning. Um, as Daryl said, we're actually we're in the midst of a series on family. And for some of you, you're kind of like, okay, wait one second. Like, my family doesn't live in this city. Like, we're, and we are going to talk about our natural family, but we really are talking about our spiritual family. And um, for most of us in this place, when we think about family, we have some kind of emotion, be it positive or negative. Some of you, like, when you think about your family, you get a warm fuzzy. You're like, oh, family. <laughs> Love my family. Um, but more often than not, if you really think about your family, there's areas of tenderness and areas of even pain that are associated with family. For some of us, that might be a specific person in our family that invokes that kind of emotion, um, not like our in, uh, entire family. I know a lot of people that as soon as you start asking about their family, they're like, whoa, <laughs> drama. You know, like <laughs> you can see immediately what it invokes inside of them of like, oh boy. Um, and for any of you that have gone through pre-marriage counseling or are doing pre-marriage counseling with us now, you know one of the key things that we even start with is like, so tell us about your mom and dad. <laughs> because oftentimes you don't realize how you unique and diverse every family unit really is. Right down to your mom had certain idiosyncrasies about how the dishes were supposed to be done and stacked or chores or the ways that they responded to you, the ways that they disciplined you, the ways... I mean, there are so many things that we receive from our family that we don't even realize. And that's why even what we do as a foundation for going into marriage is we talk about like finances. Who in your family handled finances? And was, you know, all, you don't realize how much about your spending and your saving and your giving, how much about the food you eat, how you prepare it, whether you prepare it, <laughs> what you prepare. <laughs> all of those things really come from the origin of our family. And it's amazing how much who we are comes from that reality. But what we don't realize is how significant it is in shaping us. And so when you start talking about family, or if you want to even refer to the body of Christ as a family, which we're going to look at scripture today, there's a lot of things that come along with that package. Because really in the church context, we are a family. So all of your positives and your negatives as you view your family and as you relate to your family and you've learned to relate to your family, you end up bringing that into a church context. So like if you hate conflict and in your family, you're just not supposed to fight. You just don't fight. So everybody has really bad attitudes and their heart is really on edge and frustrated, but nobody's going to talk about it. If that's your family, when you come into the church environment and there's open dialogue about conflict and, oh, I, I did, that's not how I understood it and that's not what I thought and, oh, but there's a misunderstanding here, everything inside of you goes, stop, like we're not supposed to talk about it, you know, and there's a reaction there. Or vice versa, if in your family there was explosive conflict and people were loud and boisterous and violent and angry. As soon as conflict comes up in the church, you're like, oh boy, they're going to flip a gasket. <laughs> like, oh boy, we're going to see the pastor lose it. Like, he's going to lose his temper. You know, because there's a place where you're anticipating what's familiar to you. You know, it's interesting because when you actually study, this is going to be like a total Debbie Downer for those of you that aren't married. Uh, but <laughs> you're going to be like, wait, I had such a romanticized view of it. But it's proven that with all of us, you know, we think we're looking for love. I'm just looking for a mate and I, I want love. It's proven in psychology, you're not actually looking for love, you're looking for familiar. 
Because what feels familiar to you translates love to you. Because in essence, it was your mother and your father who technically loved you and, and gave you a definition of love. So if there's a familiarity, and you know what's often said is that even if you found the perfect mate, like it was like kind of on a scientific place or all of those things they lined up as they would be your perfect match, if it doesn't feel familiar, you wouldn't go for it. Like there, there wouldn't be a place of going, yes, <laughs> I like, because it's not familiar. <laughs> You'd be going, ooh, it doesn't work for me. And it's because there's a lack of familiarity there. I know, isn't it interesting? It is, it is so interesting. So oftentimes there's a place of familiarity. And here, I know some of you are like, That's, I'm not attracted to people that are like my, hear you, my, my husband is a very, 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 very different man than my dad. I definitely, when they say you marry your father. You, I did not marry my father. <laughs> if you know my husband and my father, love them both. My dad is one of my best buds, um, but I definitely did not marry him. Uh, like our interaction, the way we relate, even my dad scratches his head and is like, what kind of creature is he? You know, because, <laughs> you know, Daryl's far more emotional and far more co a communicator. He is a much softer, gentler. My dad was a really hard, hard man. Um, he softened over the years. Maybe it's the redeemed version of my dad. <laughs> That's what I found. <laughs> um, but I will say there are places of familiarity. If you guys know Daryl, he's not afraid to tell it like it is and tell you how he feels and lay, lay the truth out there. My father is a very truthful, principled, strong man in that sense. So there are places where, but all of those dynamics, it's so, let, let me just say, it's complex. It's like really complex because even as we're going to look at today through the word, even as individual people, you could, you could find somebody in the room that had some of the same exact experiences as you, like verbatim, the same traumas, the same difficulties, the same abuses, all of those things, but it doesn't even mean that you responded or reacted or felt the same about it. So it doesn't mean that then the, 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 how it materializes in your life. And when you look at um, psychology, but when you also look at inner healing, it's not even so much the instance hit that takes place, it's our, our response and our spirit to it that we have to look at. Because there's those of us that process and we, our perceptions are so different. You can have 200 people in a room, you can have me say one sentence, and if you talk to 200 different people, there's something different they got from that. No, that's not really what I got. I got that she, no, that's not what I got. There was a tone, there was a tone that I, you know. It's all of those things because you know what it is? It's through perception. There's a perception, there's a lens that we have, and that's how we view things. And where did you get that from? Where did you get that perception of life, that lens that you're viewing through? You got it through your family dynamic. You got it. It's actually interesting. I'm not going to go into great detail because half of it I don't even understand, but when I read it, it's fascinating to me. How many of you guys are familiar with John and Paula Stanford? They're old. These, these folks are old. Uh, they, when I say old, I think uh, tw 12 years ago when I met them at the call, I think they were in their 70s. So what's that? Where are we now? Um, they're old, but when I was growing up, I read, growing up, for those of you that don't know, like I gave my heart like for real to Jesus when I was like 15. So around 16, I was reading books like this. <laughs> but at 16, I started reading their book. Um, it's called Transformation of the Inner Man. It's a, I don't even know if they still sell it. 
I couldn't find it anywhere in our house. Um, <clears throat> but it's by John and Paula Stanford, and they founded a ministry called the Elisha Healing Houses. Um, but anyway, they are psychologists. That's what they are trained in, but they're spirit-filled believers. So they really kind of meld the, the principles of psychology and healing and obviously the power of the Holy Spirit to heal and deliver. Um, but anyway, so they have a book. It's called um, The Transformation of the Inner Man. You should all read it. Some of it literally I'm like, I don't even understand, but that's fascinating. And somehow I know that's true about me, even though my mind is confused about how all that just worked out. Because they're very, very smart when it comes to psychology. So they, this book here is called Restoring the Christian Family. If you think this is like going to go all the way back to Malachi about restoring the hearts of the fathers to the children, they might throw that in there, but it's really more about the psychology of the mother and the father and what they're used to do to develop like in children. And it's actually a little scary. I'm, my, my son's seven, and I'm wondering if I've ruined his life. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, it'll put the fear of God in you, though. You're like, what? what? Um, so, <laughs> so, but it is interesting because we, along that, they actually start with the whole foundation of this specific book, and they actually talk about the Harvard-Gost and Ellis concept. And this is where I'm going to just start to help you understand how formative and foundational the understanding of family is. Um, so this concept, it, it goes through the different years of development, but first and foremost, the first year is fundamental and pervading lesson that we learn in our first year of life is basic trust. Can you imagine that in the first year of your life, you're learning basic trust? And for most of you, you're, you're translating trust as, can I put confidence in a person? Like, can I put confidence there? But that's actually not what the principle's even talking about. It's not even the intellectual or emotional processing of, can I trust you that what you say is true? That's not what the principle's talking about. This principle is talking about the capacity to hold oneself open to others, to give and to receive love. Within the first year of our life, basically what is being formed in us based upon the responses that we receive when we cry, based upon, how many of you guys, <laughs> I know it's scary, right? All the parents are like, oh crap. <laughs> I just did a cuss word. That's a cuss word in our house. <laughs> C-R-A-P. I just did it. I'll repent. You can wash my mouth out with soap. I just did it. But it was true. I just saw all the parents were like, first year. <laughs> and it, where I say it gets scary is John and Paula Stanford are like talking about like the child who's colicky. And how many of you guys know, when you got a colicky kid, as, as much as every maternal instinct is like, I love you, I'm going to protect you. When they're colicky and they won't stop and you're sleep deprived and you've lost all your hormonal balance in your body, there's something that's like, shut up! You, know? <laughs> you just want to do that. But then when you're a spiritual believer, you can just start praying in tongues. You know? <laughs> like, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. This kid's not stopping crying. Um, it's crazy. <laughs> For the, all of you that want to have children, <laughs> I just traumatized all the unmarried people. They were like, oh, uh, no, it's the most glorious experience, uh, <laughs> but it will push every amount of limitation <laughs> that you have. Um, but anyway, it's the first year of life. What is being formed is your capacity to hold yourself open to receive and to giving love. 
See, what you have to understand is a lot of this is on a very spiritual level. It's not even necessarily intellectually. Like, obviously, a, a child that's six months, nine months, isn't intellectually processing. Oh, they just screamed because they were, or I just saw my mother and father. You know, they're not processing. It's impressions upon our spirit. And it's where our spirit either learns to open because it's totally safe, or our spirit learns to close because it's not safe and it's not a safe environment. Can you imagine within the first year of our life? And the only reason I'm bringing this up, I don't know anything about psychology other than what I read from these people, but the only reason I'm bringing it up is it emphasizes what actually is developed and formed and fashioned in the context of family and why family is so important <laughs> and what it actually develops inside of us. So within the first year of life, it's the capacity to hold oneself open to others, to give and receive affection, the capacity to risk sustained heart-to-heart -heart involvement with imperfect people. If mankind were trustworthy, holding our heart open would be easy. How many of you guys know that? Is we're dealing with imperfect people. You know, I, I'm not going to reference it or get into it today, but you should go to my Facebook page. I just posted this article actually about marriage. And the article is called... It's, um, it's by um, the Desiring God people, but, um, or the Gospel Coalition. Is it Gospel Coalition? Thank you. Um, but it says, so you thought marriage would be easy. And basically what this woman is going through is scripturally and giving the understanding is that in the context of marriage, you have two sinful people. Whether you like it or not, you have a sin nature. <laughs> it's not just the person you married that has one. But she's going through the fact that it's... it's that we're sinful people. And so wherever there is the weight of sin, there is struggle, there is suffering, and there is difficulty. But what she actually goes through is that Christ himself came into agreement and chose to marry an imperfect bride. So even though he's not getting all of his needs met by us, <laughs> and we're not the perfect mate, he stays in covenant and in relationship fully knowing the deal that he was getting and loving us even in our imperfection. And basically what she charges us to is, instead of looking for the other person to be that perfect person, why don't you use what Christ has been to you to challenge you and provoke you to be that, to love in imperfections. We're actually, we have a close friend of ours that's actually walking through a divorce right now. And it's so interesting when you listen to both parties, <laughs> how different the stories are, even though it's all happening within the same home. And you know what it really comes down to is this principle of perception. That's ultimately what it comes down to. Because even with the female, as much as she has legitimate hurts and legitimate things that she's angry about, they are legitimate. <laughs> I tell Daryl all the time, I have to hold my breath from saying, yeah, I wouldn't have married him. <laughs> I, like, you can't say that. But instead, what I actually say, instead of focusing on the negative and all of the really bad things he's done, I've said, but does he mow the lawn? Like mowing the lawn, can you focus on the fact that he mows the lawn? That's exciting. Getting the lawn mowed is exciting. You know, does he take out the trash? Does, does that happen? Because if you can begin to focus on those things and just go, I'm grateful for this that you're able to do. I'm going to focus on the good instead of forever focusing on the bad. Because in every situation in your life, whether it's your work environment, your school environment, for those of us that live in community, community housing, <laughs> our church environment, our family environment, in every context that you live in, you are choosing to focus on something. You're either choosing to focus on the good 
and the redemptive qualities, you're either choosing, even with the people in this room, you're either choosing to see them as Christ sees them, or you're choosing your own lens and your own perception and your own judgment. I'm going to say this, even with your family members, with your mother and your father, I know that some of us have very, very broken situations. My father was a very, very hard, verbally abusive man, but I can remember when I got saved, like I told you, I was like legit saved, and I was about 15 years old. Obviously, with a heart that's yielded to Christ, he started working on my relationship with my dad. I, I was an angry, frustrated whatever, young lady. But as the Lord began to highlight to me, you want to know what happened to me? Instead of seeing my dad as like a big bad jerk, I began to see my dad as a really broken man. That's amazing at 15 to no longer be like, you did this and you're this. We used to like beg my mom to get a divorce from him. But all of a sudden at 15, my heart, I remember walking a beach when we were on family vacation and I, I cried and said, God, I've asked my whole life that you would break my dad's heart and make him a soft man. And I remember crying and saying, but now I realize he acts this way because he is a broken man. Would you heal my dad, Jesus? Would you heal my dad? Perception changes everything. So I, as, as people that in your family dynamics, but also in your spiritual family, you need to begin to look and ask God to see through the lens as he sees to see people as he sees them. Because in that place, your own perceptions and judgments and views are going to be completely challenged because I guarantee you they are not accurate. (laughs) So the first year of life is the capacity to risk sustained heart-to-heart involvement with imperfect people. If mankind were trustworthy, holding the heart open would be easy. So then in the first six years of the life of a child, we learn more then we will in all of our remaining years, even if we earn several degrees. Because the amount that we're receiving as far as formation of how we relate to others and how we view the world and how we perceive the world, how we perceive ourselves, most of you probably have an image of yourself that within that first six years was somehow formed. Whether you see yourself as constantly the underdog And you can never, it's probably fashioned in the way things were related to, in the way that you were related to in those first six years. Obviously, there's healing. Thank you, Jesus, for healing. I went through, like, serious inner healing when I was in the sixth grade. (laughs) Like, when I say inner healing, I'm like, deliverance. Who who knew that a sixth grader needs deliverance? (laughs) And actually, speaking of deliverance, for those of you that are here, um, we're already, like, halfway through so it's too late for you to jump in now, but in January, we'll be starting a new session. Uh, Daniela DeMatos has actually been doing a Monday night inner healing small group. There's a plug for... Daniela, why don't you wave your hand? I have heard incredible, incredible testimonies of people receiving healing through the teaching that's taking place and then the prayer that's taking place in the midst of that small group. So anyhow, I just want to lay that as the understanding of all of those things are developed and fashioned and formed in the context of our family. So for every person here that's like, oh man, I'm doomed. (laughs) Oh boy, I'm just going to be jacked up for life. The beauty of it is that we're going to look at scripture and as far as the word of God that you have been brought into a family. 
That is amazing. I can remember actually when I met Daryl and him knowing his testimony and some of the things that he came out of and me scratching my head because I didn't have some of the same trauma. One of the most distinct things I can remember him saying that it stuck with me today, till today, is when I would ask him about certain things and I'd say, well, how did you, like, and wow, do you ever remember or think about? And he would say, I have new blood running through my veins. And I remember thinking, like, that's dramatic, but it's real. Like it's, real. <laughs> like, it's really real. Like, once you've been born again, that there is new blood running through your veins, Amen. that you become a new person, that you become a new creation, that you are brought into a family. So therefore, the cycles and the patterns and the addiction <laughs> and the dysfunction and the way that everything went for all of those generations, that it does not have to go for you. And you do not have to repeat it. But you want to know the glorious thing is that those things don't then need to define your identity in the context of the family of God. If you are always the underdog in your family, it it doesn't mean that when you come into this family that now you take on that role. It means that you come into the family of God and you find your identity in Christ. You find who he is fashioned. Do you know that the church can be one of the most healing places? contrary to popular belief, (laughs) the church can be one of the most healing places if we commit ourselves in the place of relationship. Do you want to know why? Because in in the context of having ongoing relationship, all of our perceptions about conflict and and, uh, fights and disagreements and identity and competition and all of those roles and those things begin to get challenged and we have new experiences. We have new experiences. All of a sudden we realize, oh my goodness, this group of people, they know my weaknesses. (laughs) They know what I'm going through, but yet there is no rejection. They still love me and they're walking with me. It, It causes for there to be a new reality and a new perception that we'll now see the world through. But it only comes when we actually allow those things to be buffered and challenged and for us to come into a new experience. So instead of having your entire life defined by the previous experiences that you've had, how many of you know that? Most of us read the word of God and instead of looking at the word of God and, and letting it provoke us to become that, new, our, that, that our reality, we take the word of God and we go, well, that's not my experience. That's not what happens to me. That's not, that's not what my family was like. That's not what God did for me. God didn't come through for me. Instead, we stand and we compare all of those things. And what God wants for us is to come into a new reality and a new identity. In Ephesians 2.19, it says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God. This is where it's speaking of new identity, that we are no longer foreigners and strangers, but we become members of the household of God. How many of you guys know that that word household literally means that you belong to a family? You're part of a family, that you're no longer on your own, you're no longer a stranger, but you have a place of identity amongst a family. Some of us need to kind of let go of the mindset of, I'm all alone in this world. I'm going to make it on my own. I can do it with and, or without anybody else. Do you want to know, in essence, you actually can't? There's a place where you are limited unless you are part of a family. Because you know what the Word of God says? It says every joint supplies. You are intended to be a part of a bigger reality. Bigger than yourself. Isn't that exciting? You were intended to be a contributor to something much larger than yourself. 
And as long as we're just kind of limiting it to what I can accomplish and what I can do in my reality and what I can forge on my own, you are going to be extremely limited. But when you begin to say, you know what, I'm going to lock arms and be part of a family, as frightening and as terrifying as that is, of allowing my identity to be found in a greater body. Romans 8:14. for as many are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Do you love this? It's the spirit of adoption. By whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Some of you, I'm going to actually say, it, this, this passage said, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. For some of you, even if I, and I'm not going to because it would embarrass some of you, but if I said I want all of us just to verbally say, Abba, Father, there's some of you that every inch of your being would squirm in discomfort of that. That the thought of saying Abba Father is like, oh, that feels a little too familiar, and he's a God that's afar off. But do you understand that part of us being healed and whole in our identity is seeing God as Father and having a healthy, whole view of who he is? And do you know that there are places in your identity and your calling and your purpose in life that you will never reach and you will never become until that that place of healing comes of understanding God the Father. Because you know what? Until we understand him as Father, we're forever going to be striving with brothers and sisters. For, until we understand him as Father and who we are as sons and daughters, we're forever on a different plane of frustration and agitation and because we haven't yet settled the issue of identity. Once the issue of identity is settled, everything else is settled. You know why? Because now you're living from within instead of without. See, when the issue of identity is not solved, every outward circumstance is going to cause uh, frustration and, and turbulence for you emotionally. You know why? Because when it's a good day and you're being promoted and things are going well and you're being praised and you're being acknowledged, it's a good day. Good. They finally know who I am. <laughs> But you know what? When you're, I love Mike Bickle actually says that basically we're all riding a Ferris wheel. You have a place on a Ferris wheel. There's times you're going to be at the top of the Ferris wheel. You're top of the world. You're the one getting the promotions at work. You're the one excelling at school. You are on top. Well, just get ready. Because <laughs> the Ferris wheel is about to go down. And then you find yourself on the bottom. And you're like, this stinks. This is just stank. <laughs> you know, we're all complaining and kind of like, nobody sees me. Nobody loves me. I'm going to go eat some worms. You know, the, uh, do you guys, was that a thing when you were little? No. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> no, nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to eat some worms. No? Are you serious? Come on, Michelle. Michelle, Amy, come on. <laughs> I swear, this right here gives you the biggest reality check of how old you are. <laughs> I'm like, hmm. Um, 
No, but you know what happens? Is then you're at the bottom. And all of a sudden, the people that are on the top, you're like, those people are losers. They were on the bottom before. How the heck they get up there? How they, you know what it is? It's because your reality is based upon your external circumstances. Your identity is based upon what you're doing and what they see and all the accolades out here. Can I just tell you the stability of your soul is going to come when you can say, Abba Father, because he sees me, he knows me, he carries me, he loves me, it's unshakable, it's unmovable, it doesn't change with the seasons, it doesn't change with my promotion, it doesn't change with my demotion. I don't think you guys got it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Somebody looking at me like, huh? What's she talking about? <laughs> Your emotional stability, the stability of your soul is going to change dramatically when you understand who you are as a child of God. Because he could keep you here in Cambridge. For some of us, we're like, get me out of Cambridge, Lord. I want to do something. I'll go somewhere. I want to be something. (laughs) He could keep you here in Cambridge, but when your identity is in him, your assurance, your confidence, and your purpose is in him, you can be satisfied anywhere. There's others of you, God wants to send you to far off places. And you're like, oh my God, if I go to that little old village way out in no man's land, no one's ever going to hear from me, see me again. I'll have no internet. I can't put my face all over Facebook. You know, it's that fear of I will be forgotten. But how many of you guys know when our identity is in Christ, all we care about is the fact that he sees me and he knows me. And that's all that matters. It doesn't matter who else knows you. It doesn't matter who else sees you. You could literally be the greatest diamond in the rough. And the rest of the world is passing you by. as kind of like, eh, you got no gift, got no calling. But you know what? All you have to do is just sit there and say, I know what's inside of me. God knows in- what's inside of me. Whatever he decides to do with it. See, that's the place, instead of us wanting to take ownership of kind of our times and our seasons, of what God does with us and how he does it and all of those things, it's the place of saying, you know me and whatever you desire to, desire to do, I'm just along for the ride. I'm on the Ferris wheel. I might be on the bottom right now, but eventually somehow in some season, it's going to get exciting and I'm going to be able to see from a different view. That's going to be so fun. And I'll just enjoy the ride because then I might come to the bottom again. But guess what? None of it changes my identity before you. So therefore I can go for the ride and it's not going to shake me. It's not going to define me. It's not going to give me a bad day, a bad hair day, send me into depression. Because guess what? Not about me. It's about Abba, Father. I'm a child of God. And you know what's amazing? If we really get that reality, can I just tell you the amount of contentment we'll find in life? Some of you, your discontentment, you're thinking, I got to find a new wardrobe. (laughs) You know, if I could just get me some new... (laughs) I mean, we look at so many external things. Some of us, if we could just find a spouse. Other ones, it's kind of like, if I could just find, like, my career. I haven't found, like, my niche, my, my thing. You know, for other ones, it's kind of like a ministry. What is my ministry? When am I going to finally do my ministry? But do you know all of those places of discontentment? I can honestly tell you, and this is with no lie, no exaggeration, I was a nanny 
I was a nanny right before I planted the house of prayer. And I'm going to say this to you, and Daryl knows me, my family knows you, you can ask. I'm going to tell you, I don't necessarily feel any more satisfied, fulfilled, or significant than I did as a nanny. Because you want to know why? As a nanny, I was a praying, fasting, intercessor nanny. I would prophesy to the walls of that house. <laughs> I would preach to anybody that would listen. I wasn't functioning in every, any different capacity. I was still studying the word every day. I was still praying every day. I was still being a light in the midst of darkness. Who I am, Bethany Temple, did not change when I started J-Hop Boston. Who I am, Bethany Temple, didn't change when I started Hilltop Church. I didn't all of a sudden step into something. I am who I am because I'm a child of God. Tomorrow the church could go away. J-Hop could go away. Jesus could say you're going to adopt 10,000 children and go be unseen in Haverhill. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm still the same. I'm still the same. You may never see me again. You may never hear from me again. But my spirit will be alive because my identity is in Christ. Not in what you see or how you define me. And I'm going to tell you something. For every single person in this place, you are going to find tremendous breakthrough when it is no longer about what the eyes of man see and define you as. You guys have heard Chad, who was here a couple weeks ago. Who was here when Chad was here? <laughs> Chad is so funny. <laughs> so I was 18 years old. His wife gave birth to her fifth child, I was going out there for a leadership training institute, and um, <clears throat> I decided to live in their house and be their nanny while I was going to school. So they had, I, they had an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a newborn, and we homeschooled them. <sighs> I was 18. <laughs> I was 18 years old. There was a mountain of laundry. If you think we got a lot of laundry, then nothing. <laughs> mountain of laundry with these five children. She has a newborn. They traveled pretty extensively internationally. I homeschooled those children, stayed home with them sometimes two weeks on end <laughs> while they would go to Europe in different places. I'd get them up in the morning, get them to church, do all of, all of those duties. And I can remember when my season, when I, and I, let me just tell you, that was a hard season, folks, <laughs> when you're 18 years old and you're doing all your schooling and caring for five children. I basically would take my nights when I didn't have to care for kids and my days off and just lock myself in my room and pray and fast. All I would do. But I can honestly tell you, when that season came to an end, I was supposed to be coming back home to help my mom in ministry. She was a youth pastor. And as much as it kind of looked like, oh, I'm stepping out of this season and I'm going to go step into ministry because I was going to be working full time with her. I remember having such a pain in my heart and actually saying, God, this hidden place with you is such a sweet, sweet place. I never want to leave it. And if leaving Michigan, if leaving this little house with these five little munchkins, <laughs> with all the demands of my life, with me, basically my prayer time was from 10 till midnight every day in my room because it took me that long to clean up after all the kids at night, <laughs> exhausted and tired, but my heart was alive and I found a, a life of prayer there. I remember saying, I don't ever want to leave here and I will stay here forever if it just means that I can stay in this place with you. Most of us, we just need to come to a place where we're not looking to get somewhere externally. We're looking to get someplace, meaning a place of rest in Christ. 
That's what you need to be searching for and striving for, is a place of rest in Christ. And whatever is hindering that, whatever is, is an obstacle to that, that we would deal aggressively with those things to coming to a place of rest in our identity in him. So on this topic of, oh, I have to wrap this up, folks. Wow. Um, <laughs> it's late. Um, <laughs> on this issue of um, we are family as far as our identity in Christ, Jesus himself, this is actually before he dies on the cross, before there's like salvation bought for all mankind, before the, the crucifixion of Jesus, these are Jesus' very words in Matthew 12, 48. Actually, we'll start in 46. Matthew 12, 46. While he was talking to the multitude, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brother are standing outside seeking to speak with you. So he's inside talking to the multitude in the temple. And they're saying, your mother and your brother are outside. They want to talk to you. That, that gives precedence, right? If my mom wants me, I, I pretty much will drop anything for that girl. So then one said to him, look, your mother and your brother are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Verse 48. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? <laughs> Verse 49. And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples. And he said, here are my, are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I know there's a lot that can be preached about this passage of scripture. It can be preached about like basically sometimes we make family like such an idol. And so we give it precedence where God and the kingdom of God should have the priority in our lives. I'm actually not going there today. You, if you need to wrestle with that in your own heart, go right ahead. Um, but actually the point that I want to emphasize is there is Jesus. And who is he identifying as his family? He's identifying the disciples as his family. He's saying, this is my family. So if you're kind of wondering when we're talking about the family of God, you need to understand that this is what Jesus defined as his family even before he went to the cross and purchased salvation. That he was saying, those that do the will of God, this is my family. And yes, there is that principle of we basically don't need to put aside the will and the purposes of God for the pursuit and the preservation of family. But it's even more of that, more than that, what he's saying here. He's identifying who his family is. It's his disciples. And you know what's interesting about this is he called those very disciples to forsake father and mother and come follow him. And so the beauty of it is, is he, he didn't set an example that he himself wasn't giving. He didn't say, go forsake your family, come follow me. And now you're without family. He said, forsake your family, come follow me. And then when that same challenge was given to him, he was like, nope, this is my family right here. These are my brothers and these are my sisters. This is the last, for time's sake, the last point, which is important that we get to. In this context of family, if God is our father, when we come into this context, ultimately we're siblings, aren't we? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. So the way that we identify and relate to our siblings becomes a question, doesn't it? Let's look at the very, very first family that was ever formed. Who was the first family that was ever formed? Come on, you guys know. I wasn't tricking you. <laughs> Everyone's like, is this a trick question? No. <laughs> Adam and Eve, the first family. Um, turn to Genesis 4. <clears throat> so I wish we had more time. We don't. I'm going to just say this in essence. 
Adam and Eve, first man and woman God ever created. Profound, simple, profound. It was the union of marriage. It's how he ordained and set the foundation for family. Um, If you have any kind of questions about family or about even sexuality, just go to Genesis right there. You can have all your, your questions answered. So God sets a man and a woman, and obviously from a man and a woman, <clears throat> sorry, my throat. Um, I'm actually going to read to you while you guys are turning there. Um, 1 John 3, and I'm going to start, do I want to? Hmm. I'm going to. Are you guys there? Okay, stay there. Sorry. 1 John 3, I'm just going to rush this for time's sake. 1 John 3, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So he's referring to us as his children and he's giving instruction in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is is righteous um, just as he who is righteous. Then if you jump down to verse 10, in this, the the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. He's saying he that loves his brother. He's speaking about we're children of God if we love one another. This is the fruit and the manifestation of being part of the family of God and a child of God is loving one another. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 12, this is where it gets crazy. We're like, John, why are you saying this? Not as Cain, whoa, not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. That's kind of heavy, right? <laughs> like, he's talking about love one another. This is what it means to be a child of God. You love one another. And then he whips out Cain, who we're going to look at in, in Genesis. And he says, not as Cain murdered his brother. Like, I don't think any of us here are thinking about murdering, right? If you are, go ahead, raise your hand. <laughs> Pray for you. There is deliverance in Jesus. <laughs> this is where it gets interesting here. Not as Cain, who of the wicked. Oh, okay. Are we good? Good, maybe good, good, good. Hey, I'm on a time crunch here. (laughs) Check one, two. Check one, two. Check one, two. Oh, there we are. Here you go, babe. Thanks. Oops. Ah. So here we are. Um, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that you should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. This is crazy right now. How many of you guys have heard the story of Cain and Abel? We're going to look at a couple of passages of scriptures here about Cain and Abel. So it says, why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. So this is what John is saying, that his works were evil. How are his works evil? I'm not exactly thinking I'm tracking with him about his works being evil. So as you guys know, in Genesis, God created Adam. Out of his side, he brought Eve. 
Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel. It's the first, like, brothers in the earth. They're brothers. Here's the family unit. <laughs> so exciting how it sets the precedence for... <laughs> for those of you don't know, that don't know the story, uh, basically... <laughs> I hate to break it to you. Um, I'll, I'll read it to you. Now Adam and Eve... <laughs> now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And she, and she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was the keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit, of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock. And there, so here's the first offering that actually takes place in the Old Testament. This is their offering to the Lord. So Cain brings basically the fruit of the ground. Abel brings the first of his, his livestock. And what does it say? And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain in his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Here's the Lord asking, isn't he cute? Yeah, he respects one offering. He doesn't respect the other. The, the guy gets upset and the Lord says, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So let me just, let's just start, stop here for a second. God didn't pronounce like any judgment, like, Cain, you're forever cursed, like your offering stinks, I don't like you. He pretty much, like his offering, he did not receive it, did he? And we're going to find out why. I, when I was little, I think the church I was at taught me that it was because it was like fruits and vegetables and it wasn't like livestock or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> I remember always kind of being like, I don't understand this, but the Bible is actually very clear why it wasn't accepted. <laughs> So what is, I, I love the fact that God leaves this with an invitation. He totally leaves it with an invitation, like, the ball's in your court, dude. So he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So God doesn't accept his offering. Excuse me, how is this Abel's fault? <laughs> like how, it, like it's not, it's not because of Abel's offering that it wasn't accepted. It was just in the heart of God. He was, and we're going to look at this passage of scripture here. Um, Hebrews 11.4, it's laid out for us, no mystery. Hebrews 11.4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. What is it saying? It's defining that his gift was given by faith. Faith is something you can't see. Faith is something that the external circumstances of what was being offered can't be seen by the eyes of man. But let me just say something. Be sure of this. If in Hebrews, if it's being outlined that his offering was in faith, you know what that's actually outlining? That there was an offering that was given that was not given out of faith. That there was a heart posture. 
He's actually talking about the heart posture of what was given. There was something much deeper that God was addressing, and there was something much deeper of why God was not accepting an offering. Because we actually even find this, how many of you guys are familiar with Luke 18, that we have the tax collector who comes in and he prays, and he comes with humility. So even though externally he looks like a wicked, vile man, he comes with humility and his prayer is accepted. But then you have the Pharisee who comes in, and all of his pride of all of his fasting and his religious works, but what happened? His pray, it says that he walked away and he was not justified because it has nothing to do with the externals of our life. It has everything to do with the internal reality. And I want us to look at the story of Cain and Abel as understanding that as brothers and sisters in Christ, that when we stand with one another, that our posture before God is not added to, taken away. It's not hindered. It's not provoked by the works or the promotion or the demotion of any other man. You need to understand something. Abel did nothing to Cain. It was not because of Abel's works or even his acceptance. There was something that God was highlighting inside of Cain. And don't you love that God gave Cain an opportunity? He basically said, do well. If you do well, you'll be accepted. There was something he was addressing. We have no idea. We have no idea and we won't. But from scripture, what we can see is number one, God didn't accept it. But he also did not pronounce judgment, and that did not determine his future. His future still could have been one of acceptance of the next offering could have been received. Let me ask you something. What if the defining quality was just simply humility? What if he actually went to Abel and said, Abel, dude, like my offering wasn't received. Yours was received. Do you want to teach me something here? How about when you see people that are advancing and it feels as though that they are making progress and there's breakthrough, instead of hating and despising the advancement that they're making, maybe the heart posture should be, hey, you clearly have something. You don't have to say it if you're too prideful to. <laughs> you clearly have something that I have need of. I'd like to learn from you. But instead, we see people that are going places that we aren't, that are doing things that we aren't, doing things that we feel as though we can't. And in our hearts, somehow we make a judgment. Well, it's because of you I'm not getting ahead. It's because of you. When Cain and Abel, Abel Abel's success and acceptance was no uh, effect upon Cain. And it's this place of comparison. And what happens because of that? Cain, he kills his brother. And this is actually what is they're saying in 1 John, what John is saying to us. He's talking about, you are children of God. You're part of the family of God. And from the beginning, I have told you, love one another. And what does he go on to say? He says, don't be like Cain. I don't think he's saying, don't go murder someone. He's saying, don't live in comparison of your brothers and sisters. Don't let that become the the definition of your life by looking at peers that are around you and measuring yourself against them. Keep your eyes upon Christ. Of your offering is to him and for him and unto him and not unto any man. What would have become of Cain's life if he took a different posture? If he took the posture of humility, that instead of looking at Abel, he looked at God. See, that's what happened here with Cain. His eyes became upon his brother instead of his eyes being upon God. 
So I want us as a people to live with the reality that we, before, we live before God and God alone. I'm going to tell you, as a pastor, when you love so many people and you want so many people to succeed and you see certain things that are setting people up for success, you know, things that they can do, it's really hard when you see people in certain cycles, but you totally understand you can't do anything to help the process, to change the timing of the process, it's not in my hands, it's in the hands of God. And so there's something far deeper and far greater, and he is a kind, kind father. I, I want to say this to every person here in this place. I pray that when you leave here today that you are convinced of the kindness of God over you. That if there are places of delay, let me tell, just tell you something. God not accepting his sacrifice, it's God's kindness because you know what? That would have been an opportunity for a place of humility and health and growth and a place of acceptance afterwards. There's a place where God's looking to get at a root in our heart. And we're so busy looking at all the externals and all the things that we want that we think it should be if we would just simply yield and stop looking at our brother Abel and instead have eyes that are single upon God and trusting his timing and trusting his goodness and trusting his caring over us, and that his timing is perfect, that he's a good father. We're going to go ahead and close out with communion. Did you have something you wanted to share? Okay. We're going to close out with communion here. God, I thank you, Father, that you have brought us into a family. God, that we are part of the family of God. Lord, I thank you that, Lord, that we are sons and we are daughters. And God, as we even close out today, Father, with... Um, this act of communion. God, I thank you, Father, that it even would be a reminder to us today that we have new blood that is running through our veins. That because of the sacrifice of Jesus, that we do not have to live in cycles of defeat and despair. God, I ask, Lord, even today, God, through the, the, the partaking of communion, Lord, I ask, Father, that old identities would be broken. God, I ask, Lord, that identities that were fashioned and even formed through, um, Lord, our family unit, God, places of brokenness, places that um, because our parents are, are fallen, broken people, that there's places that we have been wounded. But God, I ask, Lord, for a supernatural healing to take place. Lord, I ask, Lord, for every person under the sound of my voice that has been in even cycles of defeat because their eyes have been upon their brother or sister, instead of having their eyes upon you. God, I thank you, Father, that you see us, that you know us, that you care for us, that you nurture us, that you're a good father. And God, I ask, God, that even with the taking of communion, God, that even today, God, every mindset and perception that we have of you would be broken, that you'd wash our minds afresh and anew, with an understanding of your goodness. And God, I ask, Lord, that we as a community, that we would live, Lord, as a family. Lord, a family, Lord, that our eyes are upon the Father and not upon one another. God, that we could truly live out, as your word says, Lord, that we would rejoice with those that rejoice and mourn with those that mourn. Lord, with the conviction that other man's successes or even failures do not define or restrict or inhibit us, but God, that we walk before you. 
So God, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son. We're going to go ahead and